Now, Father, as we open the scriptures, we pray that you would open our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to see Jesus. We want to understand uh, more of the glory of God and your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive right in verse 1 here. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Well, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. So here in 1 Samuel 11, I heard some Bibles uh, pages still turning, and verses 1 through 3, uh, and Roman numeral number 1, if you're taking notes, let's make a deal. Israel's enemies uh, threaten once again to destroy them. Uh, God's people here are going to panic, and they go into negotiating mode. Now, the people of Israel here in these verses are in trouble again, as usual. Uh, This time, it's the Ammonites who are threatening from the east. Uh, I have a map here. This is where they all settled, the 12 states of Israel, right? It's a little bit down here as well. And Ammon, the Ammonites, are coming here and threatening here Jabesh Gilead. The men here are now in negotiation with the king of Ammon who is here. This is the Jordan River that separates. You remember that uh, Manasseh and uh, Reuben uh, stopped short of going over into the promised land and so they wound up on the other side of the Jordan and now these bad boys are pressing in here. They want to attack. Now Israel is used to having Uh, ever-present problem with the Philistines who are down here. And they're always a threat, and they will be a threat for another 150 years. So they don't go away. They're a long-term problem. But now what the surprise is is that these people who were already conquered uh, years ago have risen up through this bad boy king, Nahash, and now they're threatening the men here. And these guys here are saying, Okay, let's talk. Let's not so quick. Let's make a treaty. Maybe you can make a treaty with us. And that's uh, really not going to work with their enemies. Thank you for the map there. Now, uh, the war that the Ammonites lost was uh, to Jephthah, just in Judges, uh, the last part of Judges there in chapter 11. Uh, Israel, with the help of the Lord, really pounded the Ammonites into the desert sands there in what is Arabia now. And, uh, but they didn't learn their lessons. And so that was a war back in the day that the Ammonites started and lost. 
but now the enemy is back because he never learns. And that's an important thing for us to notice tonight, a spiritual application for us tonight as we study this chapter. And the framework to get the most insight out of this chapter is that the Old Testament not only teaches us about New Testament language with sacrifice and redemption and election, but it also teaches us about spiritual warfare. I like what John Woodhouse, a commentator on 1 Samuel, put it, what he said. He said, the military warring in the Old Testament has valuable parallels and insights to the spiritual warring of the New Testament. Have you ever noticed how often the New Testament uses military and warfare imagery and language for the proclamation of the gospel and the Christian life? We are waging a war, Paul writes, that we have spiritual weapons to destroy strongholds with divine power. We are to clothe ourselves in, in an armor for daily battle. Peter tells us that we have a ruthless enemy trying to destroy us. Jesus just calls him a murderer on the loose. And so the Ammonites are threatening Israel here in these verses and God's interests in tonight's chapter. And what you have to come to this chapter with is the reality that you have a spiritual uh, enemy who is out after you. So as the enemy's out to quash Israel, the enemy, the devil, and his demons are threatening you, even as we speak, and the church's interest as well. And by the way, the word nehash in the Hebrew means snake or serpent. So that's the king's name, the king of the Ammonites. And by the way, the Ammonites, if you remember, are distant relatives to the Israelites through that accursed uh, relationship with Lot through an incestuous uh, incident there. So just an awful situation. And uh, here they are banging on the door, uh, threatening Israel's very existence. So here in the opening verses, the king, let's call him King Snake because that's what his name is. He hisses and all the men of Gilead just fizzle. Now in the Hebrew, the Israeli men, it says literally cut a deal with us. We'll serve you. What are they thinking? Well, they're thinking the odds are against us. Here we're kind of outnumbered. We're, we're east of the Jordan. Who's going to come and save us? Uh, we're done for. So why don't we strike a deal with the enemy and maybe we'll just agree to pay some taxes and we can call it, uh, you know, a loss there, but at least we'll spare our lives. It's as if uh, they were being mugged. They, they want to strike a deal with the mugger, so a deal that they could live with. And uh, that just doesn't work, spiritually speaking. Now, what about the new king? You have a new king, Saul. And remember, this is why you wanted a king, to fight and win all of our battles. Somebody we can admire and go out and, and defend us. They don't turn to him. They don't turn to God. What about God and prayer, you know? Sometimes when God's people panic, all spiritual reasoning goes out the window. Now, I want to make this point right away. Uh, we are never given the biblical option 
of compromising with the devil. We resist him. We fight against the king serpent. We battle with God's help. We use the sword, the word of God, as Jesus uh, did when he was battling the serpent. What did he do? He said three times to his temptations, it is written, it is written, it is written. We call on the name of the Lord, but we never compromise with our spiritual enemy. If you do and you open the door a crack, he'll bust it wide open. If you give him an inch, I promise you, he will take a mile. That's just the way it is. And so now in verse 2 there, uh, King Nahash, uh, the serpent is interested. He is interested in negotiating. And so here are his terms. He says, okay, yes, I will. I'm open to a treaty with you guys. Uh, here are my terms that I gouge out the right eyeball of every Jewish man. And I disfigure all of the men and I humiliate you and disgrace the entire congregation of Israel. Well, that doesn't sound very uh, appealing. Now, if you raise your shield to your enemy with your left hand, your left eye is covered. You look at your enemy with your right eye. And if your right eye is missing, you're useless in the battle. That's why they want to do that. On top of uh, uh, degradation and humiliation, and shamefulness. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so this is what the serpent, the devil, the Lucifer wants to do. He wants to blind or partially blind even Christians. And notice he has to have permission they're negotiating. He cannot just do that, just as the king cannot do that to the Israelites. Satan cannot come and attack and, and blind us uh, without our permission. Once you are spiritually blind, by the way, uh, the disgracing just comes naturally because when you're spiritually blind, you do things like that. You will uh, disgrace yourself. You'll disgrace your parents You'll disgrace your wife. You'll disgrace your husband. You'll disgrace your children. You'll disgrace the church. You'll disgrace the gospel. And you will disgrace God himself because you're blind. You won't see it as disgracing anybody but living your life. But he's got you. And so the serpent's waiting. I mean the king here whose name is Serpent. He's waiting. So what do you say? Can I put a hot poker into your eyeball? And what do you say? You know, can I humiliate and disgrace you? You know, I just want to know. So the Israelites respond here in verse three. Um, can we think about it for a week? Uh, let us try to rally the troops. If no one comes, you win. I guess losing an eye is better than losing our lives. And so why does the king agree? The king says, well, okay. Well, because King Nahash wants to be famous, he wants to be feared by all of Israel. He loves that reputation. He's proud. He's full of himself. He's self-confident and self-righteous. 
And because he's still unconvinced about Israel's God, even though he knows full well that Israel's God has wiped them out before <laughs> and wiped everybody else who came against his people, but he's unconvinced. Uh, and the other thing is this. He's thinking there's no way all of Israel's going to come out for these guys on the other side. See, most 90% or more of Israel's on the other side of the Jordan. And so he's thinking, yeah, they're all going to come. All Israel's going to come and leave their land and come and risk their lives over the Jordan for you guys. Not going to happen. Go ahead. Take your week and try to get some help. Knock yourselves out. So verses 4 through 11. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, where Saul happened to live, and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel, not to mention their, their very lives as well, as implied. <laughs> then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So we got 330,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to those men at Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, <clears throat> tomorrow we'll surrender to you. And you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into camp, the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Let's pause there. Roman numeral number two, Saul's first test. Now, there's a lot going on here. Let's walk through. Well, first of all, I want to say that I think that Saul's public inauguration that happened last chapter was sort of a bomb. It was sort of a failure, don't you think? Nobody even thinks of going to him as king. He's just been proclaimed as the warrior king who's going to save Israel out of all of their troubles. He's been anointed with oil by Samuel, with Samuel blessing him. God's spirit has already come upon this guy. He was miraculously chosen by lots. They're in the midst of the congregation of the elders of Israel. And it says all of Israel screams out, long live the king. But you know what? They're like, yeah, right. Come on. Rah, rah, rah. They're all excited. Last chapter, we got a king. But when it comes to reality, when they hear a real live army, the Ammonites and King Nash is coming after us. He's going to gouge out our eyes. They're thinking, and this farm boy is going to save us? No way. This rich, spoiled kid. Yeah, he's tall. He's good looking. And rah, rah, the king and all of that. But, you know, nobody bought it. 
In fact, it said last chapter, if you recall, they're unconvinced. Most of the crowd was saying, how can this, and I'm quoting, how can this guy save us? You know, when an army's breathing down uh, their throats, no one goes to Saul. And that says a lot about what happened there in chapter 10. So what do they do? They resort rather to what the, Jew, the Jews have been good at for centuries, weeping and wailing and blubbering. And as a Jew, I'm allowed to say that, okay? <laughs> because we're good at it, right? We've been perfecting it for thousands of years. Uh, so in the Hebrew there, the weeping and the wailing is a display of helplessness. It's grief and distress and remorse. And it's exactly what that King Nahash was wanting to see. It's what he's hoping for. Now, what I really like, I got encouraged by seeing these guys don't get it. God gave them the king that they wanted. And God said, even through Samuel, this is the guy who's going to save you. They don't get it. They're not calling out to him, the Lord, and they're not calling out to Samuel. But God finds a way to move them closer to the place where they need to be, and he's not going to give up on them, even though they're like stunned deer in the headlights, which is really uh, really encouraging. You know, I, I should have it all together by now. It's, it's all right there, and I'm just sitting there uh, crying and not even looking up to God, and where's my faith? And, and God comes through. It just It's a beautiful thought here. So Saul has returned to normal life. I mean, what is he doing after all of that chapter 10 inauguration? He's back in the fields with the oxen. Uh, and so he notices there in verse 5, everybody's weeping and falling apart. So he asks a couple questions. What's going on? What's happened? Why all the tears? And then in verse 5 too, they relay the bad news. The king, snake, is coming with his ruthless armies, our eyes are going to be poked out of their sockets. We're going to lose our land that the Lord gave us, and we're going to become slaves to the Ammonites, our enemies, and serve them. And then Saul gets a faraway look in his eyes there in verse 6. He starts to connect all the dots, and as they did with the Power Rangers of old, it's morphin' time again. And so as Tommy morphed into the Red um, Ranger, or was he the Black? You know, I, listen, I went online to check this out. He was first Black, then he went to Green, and then he went up, he was promoted to Red. So just so you know, it's all of those colors, all right? Because I didn't know what color he was. It was important here. What's important here is, is that Saul has the Spirit of God coming upon him. And notice, the Spirit of God comes upon him not to entertain him, uh, not to wow people with gold dust on his hands, not to thrill him, not even for his own private purpose. But the Spirit of God always comes upon a man or a woman for divine service, to do something for God. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Jesus Christ speaking, you will receive power so that you can work for me so that you can help me. I've got a mission. 
Uh, the, Lord, the Father has sent me to save the world, and in the same way, so I send you. And the Holy Spirit coming upon us is for uh, the power and enablement of Christian service. The second thing that happens in verse 6 is Saul burns with anger. This is a righteous indignation, and it's about time. It, it's a good thing. It's a spirit-led anger. The enemy has gone too far. He's overplayed his hand. It's the last straw. And sometimes that's what it takes for a believer to, to come to, to arms, to wake up, to stop playing church and playing games and being slapped around and oppressed by the world and their own flesh and by the devil. I saw a video that had gone viral. Maybe you've seen it too. The school had a bully and read a little bit about it. It was uh, one boy in particular who's kind of tall for his age and kind of large, and he got teased a lot about that. He'd go home every day with bruises all over his arms. As a pacifist, he never fought back the object of great ridicule. And one day, as it's being filmed on somebody's iPhone, uh, the bully is smacking him in the face, and... Uh, the kid snaps, and he just goes ballistic, and he picks up the bully up above and thrashes him down onto the concrete, just picks him up totally off of the ground and throws him down, like breaks him. I mean, he, he doesn't break in half or anything, but uh, <laughs> it looks very, very painful. And, uh, you know, believers are bullied all the time, and they take it and take it and take it. I'm wondering, are you a pacifist? Are you a spiritual pacifist? Do you just let Satan come in and do whatever he wants and tell you whatever lie to debilitate you, to hinder your Christian life, to mess up your marriage and your family and your kids, and you just take it? You don't fight back for whatever reason. Maybe God's waiting and allowing things, and one day you're going to get it and snap and start praying. What's it going to take for you to, to wage spiritual battle, to get on your face before God? Maybe skip a couple meals and intercede, to get into the scriptures and start actually believing them and quoting them and, and speaking them as if you believe them. That's what happened to Saul. He just got it. And now God's going to work and he's going to cooperate with God and things are going to get done. So he's going to gather an army. He does so in the most unorthodox ways there at verse 7. Uh, unorthodox to us anyway. He butchers the two oxen and he fed exes them to, throughout, of, throughout Israel, <laughs> these bloody chunks of of oxen, and uh, he sends him with a message, and he says, listen, Saul and Samuel have a God-called battle to wage, and Israel's in trouble, and anyone who doesn't come to join us and fight with us and help us is going to end up like this oxen. And then, 
the Spirit of the Lord enhances the message with a little divine uh, anointing, a little zap, and it says that the fear of the Lord kind of grasped them all. And, and before you know it, 330,000 soldiers gather as one man. Now, most of Israel is, as I've said, west of the Jordan, so 330,000 guys could gather and they all, they're all coming from parts of Israel where uh, they couldn't be seen. And so they don't know. The enemy doesn't know that 300,000, 330,000 guys are waiting there. So uh, needless to say, the messengers go back to the men who are negotiating with King Nahash. And they are elated. They are overjoyed. What are they told? They're told there no worries by noon tomorrow, you're going to be saved. Uh, we're all coming to your rescue. Hang on. And the, and the your verse says they're elated. Now listen, sound familiar? They knew they had an enemy. They knew they had a savior. Therefore, they had great joy at the great message. That's the gospel. And so verse 10, uh, they go back to King Nahash. And they say something very interesting that I like. Um, they're not technically lying. They say tomorrow, in the Hebrew, it says, we'll come out to you. And, and the word could mean to come out or to surrender. NIV translates it for you in the sense, but I think they should have left it to come out because uh, that's the original Hebrew. And there's a play on words there. We're going to come out to you. And uh, then you can do whatever seems good to you with us. And, and that's very true. I mean, it might change when you find out that there are 330,000 of us, but then you can choose. You know, you can choose to try to pluck our eyes out or you could run for your lives. <laughs> so the king of Ammon uh, gets the news and he's thinking, okay. And he agrees, of course, and probably God is helping him to agree. Uh, there, he's probably thinking, they want to start out in the morning tomorrow. They want to kiss their wives and kitties goodbye. They want to uh, get their houses in order, swell. Okay, so uh, with, with false confidence, they retire for the evening. Sweet dreams of gouging guys' eyes out in the morning. You know, when you're a bad guy, those are your wonderful dreams, I guess. <laughs> but Saul... Splits the 300,000 into three groups. Good military strategy. Um, he's thinking probably of Judges 7 when Gideon does the same thing in the same area, crossing the Jordan, uh, fighting the enemy. And so uh, the la verse 11, the last watch of the night is 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's when they go into action. They catch the Ammonites by surprise and completely rout them. Your verse says there not a two of them were left together. So they all disperse like a bunch of just little um, insects running from the light. Now, look at this. This new inexperienced king, uh, inexperienced army of 330,000, but with God's help, they win the day. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Once again, we see this beautiful balance, this winning combination of the Lord's grace and favor and strength 
combining with Saul's abilities and intellect and the army's cooperation and effort, the army is preparing, they're thinking, they're strategizing. They have weapons, they're running, they're climbing, they're advancing, they're sweating, they're working, they're engaged. But the the victory comes from the Lord. we need to understand that it, it's, it's God's grace and our cooperation and it's us working together. Proverbs 21, verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory rests with the Lord. Now, sometimes, once in a while, God says to us, sit still. This isn't about you. This is my battle. You stay out of it and just sit and rest and watch what I can do. Nine times out of ten, it's not that way. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get up. Grab a weapon. Not a real literal weapon, a spiritual weapon of prayer or, or, or a Bible verse or Bible truth. These kinds of things. Exodus 14, remember, we all want it this way. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid, stand firm. You'll see the deliverance of the Lord. He'll bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. That's nice. That's one of our favorite verses in the Bible. But unfortunately, that's not the whole story. The whole story is he expects us to cooperate. I like what one commentator said. After he quoted Psalm 121 is why I picked it for tonight's reading. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. So the commentator said, we do our part, but victory is always because of God. The problem is that we say, well, since the victory belongs to God, let him build the house and let him guard the city by himself since its its success is up to him and him alone. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's a we thing. He wants to involve us. He wants our cooperation. And we do life together. And when we get that, life works out so much better. We better finish up 12 through 15, and we'll be done. The people then said to Samuel, who was it last chapter... That asked, shall Saul reign over us? Bring those guys to us and we'll put them to death. But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as king in the presence of the Lord There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. So Roman numeral number three, Saul's official coronation. So now Saul's gone from, you know, for the most part, this unknown, rich, privileged farm heir with kind of a zero confidence vote as king to a highly esteemed war hero kind of royalty now. He, I mean, God used them to save the day. Now, everyone, Saul's supporters are what? They're saying, uh, let's get the guys from last chapter who didn't bring any gifts, 
who slandered this guy and said, oh, look at this guy. He's going to save us. And they snubbed the party. They didn't go to the inauguration and they didn't bring gifts. Now the supporters said, look at this guy. He was the king. Look what he did for us. He saved our lives. Bring those guys out and we'll expose them and kill them. And King Saul, in a likable moment, because he's got a lot of admirable characteristics that we admire and respect. That's the problem with this guy. He's on the path to perishing and he's likable and he's got good character qualities. And here's one of them. He says, look, this is a joyous day. God just saved our lives. And you want to kill people? Now, interesting, the king Nahas, the serpent, has slithered away. However, the real serpent behind Nahash is still there. And through victory, now he couldn't kill them through Nahash. Now he wants to put a seed in all of them to kill one another and turn a victory into a bloodbath and have them do the job themselves. Let's get those guys and bring them out here and, and slaughter them. That's how Satan works. So guard your heart, not only when you're under attack, but when you have victory. Because the one thing you can say about Satan is he never gives up. If he can't get you in a defeat, he'll come around in the victory. And then, then he wants to divide Israel. Look at this. Look at them. Hate them. Kill them. But King Saul has a good moment there. Saul, to me, in closing, <laughs> is every Christian's worst nightmare. I remember 30 years ago at Bible college, when I first heard about this guy, I remember Professor Dan Albright. I remember where I was sitting at the table. I got the heebie-jeebies because of this guy's life. And he was saying, look, you can start off with this great potential and this calling and the spirit of God is on you and you can have victory. You could be likable and well-respected and people following you and you can end up in disgrace and I remember, and he looked at all the guys at the table, and he said, is that going to be you? In 30 years, am I going to hear this story that all my students, all my gifted preacher boys, they went out and they started works, and 25 years into it, or 20 years, or 30 years, look at them, disgracing the, the word of God, Jesus, their families. Am I going to hear that from you? I remember just getting, because oh, I knew, yeah, it's possible. It could be. It could happen to you. Poked out an eye. You may still get to heaven. Half blinded, half disgraced people. He's a problem. I can't figure him out. A nice guy, wisdom. He's got the, the Lord. And he gets filled with pride. And he does things on his own. And he lives out of his insecurities and not confidence in the Lord. Am I going to hear about you in a few years from now? 
I don't want to. Are you going to hear about me in a few years? I don't want that to happen. Let us keep our eyes upon Jesus. Walk in humility. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Keep busy at the work in front of us. And may the fear of the Lord stay upon us and keep us in the word and being filled with God's spirit. And when the enemy comes in and says, can I just get a little peace? Just that much. Come on. You can still go to heaven. Come on. Just compromise just a little bit. You say no. You resist. And you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll end up like King David. Instead of King Saul. So uh, here in 14 and 15, the last couple of verses, uh, there's a renewal of the king's vow. Because Samuel's wise. Uh, Samuel knows that people were not entirely behind this king last chapter. So he uses the victory as a time uh, to renew Saul's vows. Now the whole nation is with him. And you know what? In closing, the battle turned out to be a good thing. Uh, It's one thing to be appointed uh, as king, but now he's proved himself. And unbeknownst to King Nahash and the army, they had given King Saul the perfect opportunity to show what he's made of. This really helped King Saul. The whole place knows, look at that. He's the king. He's God's anointed. But without that aggression... Without that attack, it couldn't have been seen. So, you know, when you're challenged and you're over your head, God is allowing an opportunity to happen to show you what you're made of with him inside of you. You know, when he lets you go through something, you'll come out the other other end of it and you will be saying, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I could take a hit like that and still praise the Lord. You know, and there are guys in the congregation or one guy I'm thinking of who lost his wife in a tragic way. I'm sure if you would have asked him years ago, could you lose your wife in a heartbeat with five kids and still praise the Lord? And he'd say, I don't think so. Could you go through cancer for a couple years, three years, have a bone marrow transplant and have to endure all of those ups and downs? I would have said, no way. But you come out and you say, wow, look, What God has done through testing me through the adversity and through the challenge. And that's what happened here. And King Saul is probably kind of grateful for the attack. Because it was an opportunity for God to show Saul and the Israelites God's calling and and the character that he put in King Saul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who keeps us as we cooperate and walk in obedience and faith. We have assurance and confidence that each day we'll live for you and that you are able to keep us from falling and to present us before the throne of grace without fault and with great joy. So to you, God, be all the glory the honor and the power and the praise now and forevermore in Jesus' name, amen.